All right, Genesis chapter 8, starting in verse 20, reading through chapter 9, verse 17. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took, uh, took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground or dishonor the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens and upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I give you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning from every beast. I will require it from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Team on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I made between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Okay. Just a reminder from last time, which would have been about two weeks ago, we looked at chapter 8, verses 1 through 19. And there we see essentially the flood subsiding. Um, Chapter 6 Verse 9 starts the generations of Noah. Again, that's that marker in Genesis. These are the generations, or this is the book of the generations, or this is the story of, however it might be in your Bible. Uh, these are the generations. In Hebrew, it's toledot, and it's just a, it's a place marker. It's a time marker. It's a way to sort of subdivide the book of Genesis. And in chapter 6, verse 9, we get the generations, or the toledot, of Noah and his sons. And his story goes until the end of chapter 9. And then you're going to see in chapter 10, verse 1, these are the generations of the sons of Noah. So here we are looking at the story of Noah. And in chapter 6, of course, Noah is commanded to build the ark. He is commanded to build the ark because the Lord has looked upon the earth and he's seen that um, every thought and every attention of the heart of man is wicked only 
evil continually. It is wickedness has filled the earth. So God says judgment is coming. And he tells Noah, who is a righteous man, I will preserve you. Build an ark. So he builds an ark. And then in chapter 7, of course, he tells him, go in the ark. <laughs> it is time. Go in the ark now. And I'm, all the animals I will send to you. And they will go in the ark. And the Lord shuts them in. And the rains come. And the fountains of the deep are broken open. So here we have not just waters from above. You've got waters from below. And you've got this great cataclysmic event. This great day of the Lord event in which God judges all living things on the earth except for what is on the ark. But then in chapter 8, we see now the rains have stopped and the water begins to recede and we saw that God remembers Noah. And we looked at a lot of passages about God remembering. And the the idea of remembering is always in the context of covenant. Remember in chapter 6, verse 18, God had already told him, I will establish my covenant with you. Now you don't get the details of that until what we're going to look at tonight. But God remembered Noah. God remembered that Noah was on the ark. God remembered that he had saved Noah from judgment. So then you see the the process there of how the waters began to recede, how the ark um, finds, you know, hits landmark in the tops of the mountains of Ararat and how um, Noah then sends out a raven, then he sends out a dove, and eventually God tells him, time to get off the ark. So he gets off the ark. That's where we were. So last time we saw remembrance, relenting, and renewal. Noah, in a sense, steps into a, in a sense, a new world. It's a new earth. It is a new uh, creation, in a sense, um, because he has been saved through judgment. And he now is going to be given the covenant. He's now going to be given a command to be fruitful and multiply. That's what we're going to see uh, tonight. But this remembrance, this relenting, and this renewal, the earth has been, in a sense, cleansed from the sins before. Now, the judgment did nothing to fix the problem of sin. That's the problem, okay? It's been cleansed, but guess what? It's going to fill with wickedness again. Um, But God now is going to show restraint. He's going to show patience. Uh, You will see judgment throughout the Old Testament, but this worldwide cataclysmic judgment you will not see until the end when Christ returns. Until that time, the earth is being preserved. uh, And that's what we're going to see tonight. So, whereas last week we saw remembrance, relenting, and renewal, tonight we're going to see worship, blessing, and covenant. Worship, blessing, and covenant. And the theme for tonight is Noah worships the Lord for his deliverance through the flood, and the Lord makes a covenant with Noah. So again, worship, blessing, and covenant. So the first part we're going to look at is verses 20 through 22, basically just the rest of chapter 8 that we didn't look at last time. Of course, last time we saw Noah, he was leaving the ark with his family and all the animals that he brought with him. Right, verses eighteen and nineteen of last uh, of the you know of the same chapter. So Noah went out as and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. This, the flood is over. Life can begin anew. Noah can start uh, building a new life in this new world that God has sort of cleansed from the sins uh, that we saw in chapter six. And the first thing Noah does is he builds an altar. Look at verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord 
and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. So the first thing Noah does when he comes off the ark is he worships. He worships. He has been saved. He has been delivered from the flood. And the first thing he does is he worships God for the deliverance that he worked in his life. He builds an altar and offers a burnt offering. Now, we're not sure. Now, again, okay, context. Remember, who wrote uh, Genesis? Moses wrote Genesis, right? He is writing Genesis right around the time that they are getting ready to enter into the promised land. So all of this idea, all of the Mosaic law is already kind of there. This idea of burnt offering is already familiar to the recipients, the audience who is reading this and hearing this. And and we're seeing some of these concepts brought into the story here. Now, we're not quite sure how Noah was prompted to do an offering, but we do know, if you remember back in chapter 4, What did Cain and Abel do? Well, they brought offerings to the Lord, right? They recognized somehow that that sin requires death, right? Because what happened when their parents sinned? They said, in the day that you eat of the fruit, you shall die. And what happened? Well, there was a death, right? There was the animal that provided the skins for Adam and Eve to wear. So a death was, was accomplished there that was sort of in the place of their own physical death. Now, they would eventually die physically, and they've already, in a sense, died spiritually. They're, they're no longer, they no longer have that communion with the Lord. But there's that idea that a death was done in place of their sin. So Cain and Abel would have already had this idea that sacrifice had to be made. And that's what you saw in chapter 4. Cain brings an offering of the best of his flock. Right? He is a shepherd and he brings a, a, a live animal sacrifice. The best of his flock. Exactly what God would eventually require of the Israelites. What does Cain bring? Well, he brings grain. He brings uh, the fruit of his labors of the ground. Now, it's not a bad offering. You know, in fact, that there's, there's an offering in the Old Testament that is a grain offering. It's a thanksgiving offering. But the problem is you need an atoning offering. You need a sin offering. And that's not what Cain brought. Abel brought the sin offering. So here what you see is Noah, perhaps that tradition has been brought down. Perhaps people like Enoch, who walked with the Lord, um, was faithful, and perhaps he offered sacrifices. I'm speculating here, okay? I'm, I can't say more than what Scripture says, so I'm speculating. But perhaps Noah had this idea from, uh, you know, from the past. But whatever the case may be, he builds an altar. He builds an off- altar and offers a burnt offering. And that, that phrase there, burnt offering, is one word in the Hebrew. It's, it's an, an ola. An ola, and it means it speaks of a whole burnt offering. In other words, something that is completely um, consumed in the act of sacrificing it. And it's, an all, it's a, a sacrifice to the Lord. Now this altar, more than likely, was made out of dirt or stone or perhaps wood from the ark. Uh, it would have been a sort of a, uh, a man-made ar- uh, uh, altar. Uh, it's interesting that in Exodus you have some... Uh, commands there that the Lord says in Exodus 20 that if you're going to use stone, make sure it's unhewed stone. Don't bring any, you know, don't work it with your tools. Um, the stones are fine just as they are, okay, to use as, a, as part of the altar. But in Exodus 20, 
uh, verses 24 and 25, there uh, the Lord says to Moses, um, 24 starts on the page here, an altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen in every place where I cause my name to be remembered. I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stone, for if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. You're like, well, that seems kind of harsh. Well, again, the stones are doing what stones do, right? The, st- the stones are already part of creation. If we take our tools to it, you are, you are kind of messing with, with that creation. So he builds an altar and offers his burnt offering. Now, as I said earlier, this burnt offering uh, is going to be something that becomes part of Israel's worship, both in the wilderness and uh, in the promised land. And you get the um, regulations, if you will, of the burnt offering in Leviticus chapter 1. In Leviticus, uh, the first five chapters speak of the types of offerings that they are to bring. There's a burnt offering, a grain offering, a peace offering, a sin offering, and then um, a guilt offering. But in chapter 1 of Leviticus, here Moses tells the people, he says, The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering, an olah, from the, from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering. That's kind of a symbolic transference of the guilt. And it shall be accepted uh, for him to make atonement for him. This is an atoning sacrifice. Not like on the day of atonement, but it brings atonement. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the uh, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw uh, throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent. So it's all part of this ritual. Then he shall lay flat burnt offering and and cut it into pieces. And the sons of Aaron, the priests, shall put fire on the altar and arrange the wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the pieces, the head, the fat, on the wood that is uh, on the fire on the altar. But its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water, and the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And then he goes on. It's like if it's a, uh, a male from the herd, a male from the flock, or if, it's, if they're too uh, poor, they can offer birds. So it's just you know, different types of animals. But the idea is this offering is brought to the Lord. There is a sort of a symbolic transference of the guilt of the sinner on the animal, and then it is killed, its blood is splattered on the altar, and then the entire offering is burnt. And then it's supposed to bring a pleasing aroma to the Lord. It is a sacrifice of atonement. In fact, that word sacrifice, uh, kapar, yam kippur, the day of atonement, kapar is the word for atonement. It's, it's, it's a, an appeasing, it's an appeasing of God's wrath. Well, here, uh, Noah offers a burnt offering, perhaps an atonement-type offering. Now, the point of all this is to draw uh, attention to the fact that Noah's first act upon leaving the ark is an act of worship. You know, we can go into much more detail about the offering, but the point is 
the, the, what Noah did the first time he, the first thing he did when he got off the ark is he offered thanks to God by way of an atoning sacrifice to the Lord, a burnt offering to the Lord. Salvation leads to worship. Salvation leads to worship. That's why you get that great you know, section in Romans 12 where Paul, after highlighting 11 chapters of the wonderful, amazing, stupendous mercies of God, when he gets to chapter 12, then he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. What are the mercies of God? Everything you saw in the first 11 chapters of Romans. God's salvation. God's justification of sinners through faith. God's sanctification of sinners. God's glorification of sinners. God's salvation for all people, particularly the Jews as well. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, what? to present your bodies as a living sacrifice of thanksgiving, right? Holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Salvation leads to worship. And our lives then are to be, in a sense, spent for the Lord, spent in His service, as a living sacrifice. So our bodies are not consumed on the fire. Our bodies are not burned up. Our bodies are offered to God as thanksgiving. We are His sacrifice. We are a sacrifice of thanksgiving. A living sacrifice to Him. Because of the salvation that He provides. Now when Noah offered the burnt offering, we see then... In verse 21, the Lord smells the aroma. The Lord noticed the aroma. Look at verse 21 and 22. Or at least verse 21. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, literally it's when he smelled the smell, uh, when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse or dishonor the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While earth, while the earth remains, sea time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. So the offering that Noah made pleased the Lord. Again, that language there, he smelled the, 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 the smell of the offering was a pleasing aroma. Again, God does not have a nose, right? <laughs> you know? This is what we said last time, anthropomorphic language. It's language to accommodate human beings. God found the sacrifice acceptable. It pleased him. It was well performed, and it was well intended. It was a sacrifice of thanksgiving for salvation, and the Lord was pleased by it. And as a sense, in a sense, and what happens is, because of that, or that is the means by which then the Lord then agrees to never again dishonor or curse the ground. Now there's a play on words there. That word for pleasing is nehoach. I think my Hebrew's right there. If I can read what's in my notes here. Nehoach, which sounds a lot like noach, right? It's, so there's that idea of a pleasing aroma and rest. In other words, Rest has been achieved. 
in a sense. The sacrifice appeased the wrath of God. And then Noah found rest, as his name uh, indicates. And then we're made privy to the Lord's internal monologue, as he says in his heart there. That's what we saw there, right? And the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse or dishonor. That's what the word really means, dishonor the ground. Now we see here, this verbiage is essentially the Noahic covenant. Now it's going to be repeated again in chapter 9, verses 8 through 17. But based on Noah's sacrifice, in a sense you could say this is an intercessory sacrifice. God promises that the earth will continue. Now this does not remove the curse, right? Even though that, you know, my translation says I'll never again curse the ground. That's, again, that word means dishonor, but there's another word for curse. And that doesn't remove the curse or the stigma of sin. Okay? That is still there. The curse of the fall is still in effect. Humanity is still fallen. Humanity is still totally depraved. And as I said earlier, uh, just despite the fact that the earth has been cleansed from its sin, eventually people are going to populate it, and wherever people are, you're going to find sin. Right? That's just a state, that's just the fact of the matter. But it is a sign that God will establish a common grace covenant. We'll look at that in a moment. We'll consider that in a moment. But he's going to establish a common grace covenant with all living creatures. So that's Noah's act of worship to the Lord. Now in verses 1 through 7 of chapter 9, we see that God blesses Noah. As a response to Noah's act of worship, we see God blessing Noah in chapter 9, verse 1 and following. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now, these words should be very familiar to you because these are the exact same words God said to Adam uh, in the garden when he created uh, Adam and Eve. He said, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth with the image of God. Now, of course, that was given to Adam before the fall. So that was, the intentional, that was the original intention of creation, was to fill the earth with the image of God, the uh, unfallen image of God. But here again, God says to Noah, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. Fill the earth. As I said, same words that he says to Adam. But there's a notice, noticeable exception. Do you remember what did Adam, God say to Adam, um, in verse 28 of chapter 1, God blessed Adam, sorry, God blessed them, Adam and Eve, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that, is, that moves on the earth. Adam was a, you know, a vice regent, if you will, a, a, a stand-in for, for God upon the earth. He was God's uh, spokesman, he was God's vice regent, and he was to bring dominion over the earth and to rule it in, in, you know, for God upon the earth. That command is now missing here. The dominion mandate that was given to Adam is not repeated with Noah. That, that should be, we should take part of that, because some people think that the dominion mandate is still in effect, that we are to go out and subdue the earth and to rule over it and rule over all the creation. That will happen when Christ returns, but now the dominion mandate is no longer... It was given to Adam, and he failed. It is given to the second Adam, the new Adam, Christ, and he will succeed. But here, Noah is just told, instead of have dominion over all the creatures, he says the fear 
of you, and the dread of you shall be upon every beast. Man is no longer living in harmony with creation. Again, because of the curse, because of the fall. The animals are going to fear him. Right? You know, who, who is the greatest predator on the face of the earth? Mankind, right? <laughs> There's not a place in this earth that man has not been to. There's not a place in this earth that man has not staked some kind of claim to it, right? There's no animal on this earth that man has not in some way, shape, or form uh, conquered or captured or put, on, put into a zoo or what have you. The largest creatures on this earth so far, as we know it now, uh, they have been subjugated in a sense. And the fear of man is upon every beast. So instead of ruling over the, king, the animal kingdom in harmony, the fear of man has been placed in the animal kingdom, yet man is still to exercise some control. Moreover, unlike the provision that we saw in chapter 1, verse 29, where there he says, And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with uh, seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. Now we see in verse 3 of chapter 9, Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. So man's diet has been expanded. Now some of us may, see, may say, amen, praise the Lord. I love steak, right? <laughs> we can now eat steak. Uh, that wasn't the case before. Man was a vegetarian. Now the entire food chain is open. Everything is open to mankind here. He can eat among all living creatures. The only exception given here, as we see in verse 4, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Now, these are prohibitions that we see repeated uh, throughout the Old Testament again. Leviticus, uh, sort of you know, the, the legal code for the priests in Leviticus 17, verses 10 through 14. There, if any one of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. So the blood is some, blood basically is symbolic of life. Okay, you know that that's the the Old Testament way of looking at things. Blood is symbolic of life. When the blood is spilled, the life is being taken. When the blood is uh, uh, splattered on the altar in an atoning sacrifice, that is, in a sense, saying this life has been sacrificed for in the place of the one giving the sacrifice. The life is in the blood. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Therefore I have said to all the people of Israel, no person among you shall eat blood, neither shall any stranger who sojourns among you eat blood, and so on and so forth. Again, this is repeated in Deuteronomy chapter 12. Numbers, Deuteronomy 7, 8, 9. There we go, 12. Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 16. Only you shall not eat the blood. You shall pour it out on the earth like water when you kill an animal. Verse 23, again, of the same chapter. Only be sure that you do not eat the blood, for the blood is the life, and you shall not eat the life with the flesh. And this was also repeated in Acts 15 in the Jerusalem Council. When um, 
there was a, a controversy between the Judaizers and the church uh, over circumcision. There was a council held in Acts chapter 15, uh, and a decision was made uh, that the Gentiles will not be required to become circumcised. In other words, uh, they will not be under the Jewish law because the Jewish law has been, in a sense, set aside by the coming of Christ. And then when they write the letter to be sent to the churches, they say that, and then they also say, all that we ask is that you refrain from sexual immorality and refrain from eating blood because the life is in the blood. So this, again, this prohibition against eating, you know, drinking or eating the blood because, again, the blood represents life. So God tells Noah, you can eat everything, just do not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Now, as I said before, even though you can kind of look at this as a a quote-unquote new creation, and it is a new world, right? Um, If we believe that before the flood, it was... It was, the geography was, was different. Now after the flood, the geography is much different. So in a sense, it really is a new world. But in this new quote-unquote creation, it's a whole different world than it was back in the garden. Right? Adam in the garden lived in a sin-free world before the fall. Now Noah lives in a fallen world. And as I said earlier, when they start multiplying and filling the earth, guess what? They're going to be multiplying and filling it with sinners. Sin will spread once again. So then you see there in verses 5 and 6, stipulation that God makes. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Here you see... And this verse is often used to support capital punishment. Uh, This verse is often used to support the idea that a life is given for a life. If if there is a homicide, if if someone is killed, then it is required life for life. Um, You know, the Old Testament, the Mosaic Law, will actually throw in what is often called, fancy phrase, the lex talionis, or the law of retaliation. And you'll see life for life, tooth for tooth, eye for eye, right? In other words, whatever the crime was, the punishment should fit the crime. If, if, if an eye was lost, you can only take another eye, so to speak. If, if a tooth was lost, so you, can't, uh, you, know, you can't put the death penalty because someone knocked your tooth out, right? <laughs> okay? Um, the idea is, but you can, if a life was taken, a life was to be taken in place of it. And the same thing with animals, right? You see this in the, in the stipulations of the old, old Covenant, too. If, someone, if a neighbor's uh, ox gores his neighbor, right, and the neighbor dies, that ox has to be put to death because it took the life of a man. And then that man probably has to pay some kind of you know, penalty as well, as, you know, assuming that it was an accident that the ox got free. Yeah. Right, yeah, so uh, if you didn't hear that, uh, if the, the ox was known to have done this in the past and it happened again, then, you know, then the idea is the owner of the ox is, is culpable. He's culpable because he should have known this. That ox should have been put to death the first time it happened. So, yeah, so this idea, the, the death penalty then is, is sort of instituted here 
for murder, for homicide. And, and, this, and the ground for it is, for God made man in his own image. Even fallen, the image of God is still special. Even fallen, man still has an honored place in creation. The fall does not take away that honored position. Um, so, uh, capital punishment for the crime of murder, anyone, human or animal, that takes the life of a man shall pay with its life. And again, this is something we also see codified in the Mosaic Law. The, the, the uh, sixth commandment, right? You shall not murder, Exodus 20, verse 13. And then chapter 21, verse 23 of Exodus. But if there is, uh, sorry, uh, a little context. These are other laws uh, here. And it says, when men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her, ch- her children come out, but there's no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined, as a woman's husband shall impose upon him, and he shall pay as the judge is determined. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Again, if a pregnant woman is caused to lose her baby because two men are struggling and one of them hits her, then that man's life is forfeit. Deuteronomy 19.21 will say something similar. Deuteronomy 19.21 Now, let me just back it up to verse 13. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who are in office in those days. The judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and the rest shall hear and fear and never again commit any such evil among you. Your eye shall not pity. It shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. So again, that idea of the lex talionis. In other words here, what you see is this is setting the stage for what will eventually become human governments, this idea of capital punishment. Because then eventually what we see in Romans, particularly in Romans 13, is that we learn from Paul that God establishes human governments, and one of the things that they are established to do is to wield the power of the sword. And the power of the sword is meant to signify that Capital punishment, right? If, if, if someone commits a crime, if someone commits a murder, the government has the right to wield the sword in that case. They have that judicial uh, provident, province given to them by, by the Lord. So what we see here, not only do you see the blessing, right, to be fruitful and multiply, that um, all, of, all, of, uh, all the animals are open to eat, but then you also see this, this prohibition against murder. This is going to govern this new world. Again, we live in a fallen world. Right, so you need laws in a fallen world because we're we're just we're we are going to sin, right? So these laws are set up, and here's the first one that God impresses upon Noah that life is precious, and if life is taken, a life shall be taken in its place. 
Well, now that brings us to the final point here, verses 8 through 17. Uh, in the verses that remain here, we get the formal establishment of what will typically be, what is typically called the Noahic covenant. No, uh, N-O-A-H-I-C. You, know, you don't usually say Noahic. You just kind of say Noahic covenant. So verse 18, then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, verse 10, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant, so again he repeats it, with you, that never again, here's the stipulations we saw at the end of chapter 8, never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. That is essentially the content of the Noahic covenant. Now, usually in some of the other covenants you see, there is, you know, God says, I will do my part, and, and there's some commands given to the other party. In the case of the covenant made with Adam, he says, if you obey, I will grant you eternal life. If you do not obey, your life will be forfeit. If you eat and break my covenant, you will lose your life in that case. Same thing in the, no, in the Mosaic covenant. Uh, the stipulations are the Mosaic law. If you break those, then you are bound to the curses of the covenant. But here, this seems to be a, a kind of a one-way covenant where God is essentially making a promise and saying that if I break my promise, I will pay the penalty. Just like he did with Abraham, right? Who goes, you know, we're going to look at that when we get to chapter 15 and, and however long it takes me to get there. But when we get to chapter 15 and, and God makes his covenant with, with Abraham, he arranges sort of like a typical uh, covenant setup like you would have in that day and age where you would cut animals in half and then both parties of the covenant were to walk through between the animal pieces signifying basically this. Let it be done to me as these animals if I break the covenant, if I do not do my part in this covenant. So he commands Abraham, okay, set up these animals and lay them side by side and, and then we'll pass through them. But then what happens is that God puts Abraham into a deep sleep. And then the only one that goes through the pieces is God, right? I will keep the covenant and if I fail, then let it be done so to me as well. Well, the good news is that God will keep his covenant, right? <laughs> God is not going to break his promise. God is not going to break this promise here in the Noahic covenant. And with all covenants, there's a sign. There's a sign of the covenant. Just as the Mosaic sign or the Abrahamic covenant had the sign of circumcision, uh, the Mosaic covenant, the sign of the Mosaic covenant was the, the Sabbath. The sign of the new covenant is, uh, you know, baptism and the Lord's Supper here. The Noahic covenant, the sign is the rainbow. That's what we see in verse 12 and 13. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I've set my bow. And it's an interesting word. That, that word is keshet. It's like a war bow, right? It's a battle bow. And where's the bow pointing? <laughs> right? You know, if you look at a rainbow, where's it pointing? Upward, right? <laughs> you know, in other words, the bow is, is aimed at God if he breaks his covenant, right? But he's not going to break his covenant. The bow is set in the sky. I set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Again, the parties of the covenant are God and everything. 
It's not just Noah. We call it the Noah covenant, but it's not made specifically with Noah. It's made with Noah, his sons, their families, every living creature that walks upon the earth, the entire earth. It is a covenant made with creation in a sense. So it's a remember, the, the, the sign, the, the, the bow is a, remember, uh, a sign to call to remembrance, the covenant. Verse 14, when I bring clouds, because clouds, well, they're unfortunately like in Sutton, right? The clouds tease. <laughs> the clouds come and they say, hey, look, it might rain. Nope, we'll just pass right on by. You're not going to get any rain. But clouds typically are a sign of rain. You see a cloudy sky, you're like, oh, it looks like it might rain today. So when clouds come over the earth, and the bow is seen in the clouds. I will remember. Again, think of that word, remember, right? He remembered Noah. I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember. She's repeating these ideas. And the, the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I've established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. So again, the promise on God's part is never again will he destroy or cut off all flesh by the waters of the flood. It's not a promise that judgment won't come ever again. It's just a promise that judgment is not going to come via a flood. Uh, you know, I was going to reference this. You know, we've looked at this passage. I feel like... like Every time we do a lesson in Genesis, we've been looking at 2 Peter. But in 2 Peter, um, chapter 3, I just want to make sure I find the right place. Starting in verse 5, there Peter writes, for they, that is the, the scoffers, they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water. That's Genesis 1, right? The waters were over the face of the earth and God you know, separated the waters from the dry land. So the, the, the earth was formed out of the water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed, that was the the fancy word antediluvian, the before the flood, it was deluged with water and perished. But by the same world, the heavens and earth that, are, that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So judgment, the, the, the Noahic covenant does not mean judgment is never going to come again. It just means that it's never going to happen by way of flood. It's going to happen, right? And Peter goes on to say that the earth will melt, it will It'll be rolled up as a scroll. Uh, the earth will fade away. It'll be renewed. It'll be recreated. Uh, and then that's the new heavens and the new earth. We looked at Revelation. The same language is there as well. As the, you know, as, uh, the, the, the glorious Jesus comes and it says that the earth fled at his presence because the old creation is done. But here, again, this is a promise that judgment will not come via the flood. And as I said earlier, this is a common grace covenant. Uh, we, in theological circles, there's a distinction between common and special grace. Common grace is grace that God bestows upon all creation, all creatures, because he is 
you know, at the heart of the matter, he is a gracious God, right? Um, he could have destroyed, and you know, some people say Mike should have destroyed, right? The, the wicked in Noah's day, he waited 120 years for that. <laughs> the Lord is gracious, even though he was, uh, you know, he was regretting the creation of the people there because of their sin. He gives them 120 years. Right? How long was, was Israel in the land of the promise, the promised land until he eventually kicked them out in the exile? Centuries, right? You know, I mean, if the covenant was do this and live, how 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 well did Israel do this and live? Well, not at all, but God was gracious. Usually there's this idea that you know God will deal with the corporate entity based on you know, at least when the kings come, you know, basically the king is a representative of the people. So as the king goes, the people go. You know, that's why, you know, the, the northern kingdom fell much sooner than the southern kingdom because all of their kings were wicked and they just got worse and worse and worse and worse. But at least in Judah, the southern kingdom, you had, you know, bad, bad, good, okay, really good, bad, bad, you know, it was kind of up and down. You know, you can probably count the names of the good kings on one hand, right? Hezekiah, Josiah, Uzziah, Ace, you know, you know they all seem to end in Aya. I'm not sure if that's, I haven't done my research on that. But again, common grace is God shows himself gracious to all of creation by allowing the natural progression of times and seasons. Again, uh, look at uh, verse 22 of chapter 8. While earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Common grace is what Jesus says when he says, the Lord, you know, you know God uh, lets the sun shine on the wicked and the righteous. The rain falls on the wicked and the righteous. This is common grace. It's not saving grace. This is not a salvific covenant. The Abrahamic covenant is a salvific covenant. The Mosaic covenant is a salvific covenant. The New Covenant is a salvific covenant. The Noahic covenant is just a common grace covenant. But what the Noahic covenant does is it allows the New Covenant to come into process, right? It allows God to fulfill the promise he made way back in Genesis 3.15 when he said there will come one who will come and crush the head of the serpent, if God did not allow that to happen, if God just brought judgment upon the earth every time sin got up to a certain level and then you know, this earth-shattering judgment came about, the promise of Genesis 13 would never get fulfilled because the earth would never get to a point where you could get the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. The, the, the wickedness would just continue to propagate on the earth. So God shows himself gracious. This is a common grace covenant to all creation by allowing the natural progression of time and seasons. And we said before, the sign of the covenant, all covenants have a sign, is the rainbow. And the bow, which is pointed at God, is a sign that he remembers his covenant. Just as when we celebrate the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, it is a remembrance of what Jesus did. It is a remembrance of the inauguration of the new covenant. The bow is a remembrance of to this covenant that God establishes with Noah and all of creation. So now just to bring this to a close here. The generations of Noah, right? Chapter 6, verse 9, these are the generations of Noah, are almost complete. We've got one more episode. Now will be in two weeks where we look at verses 18 through 29 of chapter 9. 
But the generations of Noah are almost complete. But here, again, we see a picture of worship, right? What does Noah do? The first thing he does when he gets off the ark, he worships God. God has delivered me through this flood. God has, he has been gracious. He has been faithful. I, I can trust him. Why? Because he sealed me in this ark, and he delivered me from the floods of judgment. And now my first act is to show thanksgiving to him by worshiping him, by offering a sacrifice. Notice there was the clean animals, right? God told him to bring seven of those. So he had uh, things to sacrifice. It's a picture of blessing. It's a picture of worship. It's a picture of blessing, where God, in a sense, blesses him as a, as a kind of an Adam, but not quite, right? Be fruitful, multiply. But instead of have dominion, the animals are going to fear you. The animal kingdoms will fear you, and you may eat of all of creation, not just the, you know, the trees and the vegetables and stuff. And then there's a picture of covenant here as God makes a covenant with creation to preserve it until the end when, uh, preserve it until the time that the new covenant can be established and then the end will come. As I said, the flood didn't wipe out all sin, right? I mean, even with the flood, there, there are how many sinners now on the earth? Eight, right? <laughs> Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their wives. So there are still eight sinners on the world, and they're going to begin to populate, and the world will again begin to fill with sin. But the flood did provide for sin's eventual defeat in the cross of Christ, because Jesus is going to come from the line of Noah, right? Because we all come from the line of Noah. <laughs> we all come from the line of Adam. We all come from the line of Noah. Jesus is going to come through the line of Noah. So the cross of Christ will come and will provide the defeat, the full and final defeat of sin. As I said earlier, the Noahic covenant, while not salvific, it's not a salvation type of covenant, it does pave the way for the new covenant to be established, thereby fulfilling the promise of God in Genesis 3.15. Now we should not, just a kind of a warning here, but we should not be fooled into thinking that future judgment won't come because of the rainbow. I've mentioned this before. This is the time of God's patience, right? This is the time of God's patience. Again, I'm going to refer to a couple of verses in Romans, and then we'll call it good at this point. But if you remember when we went through Romans some time ago, this is Romans chapter 2. This is the, that first section in Romans where Paul is highlighting the sin of man, um, the need for salvation, because we're all sinners. He says that the, right, the wrath of God is being revealed against the unrighteous as God gives them over to the depths of their sin. But then it's also, in a sense, being revealed to those who think they're righteous. It's being, it's, in a sense, it, it's, it's being held back um, but this, this, this idea of holding back the wrath of God is meant to lead people to repentance. So in chapter 2, verse 4 of Romans, Paul, they're speaking to a hypothetical, you know, not, not, the, not the person that you see in Romans 1. This is a different type of person. This is a person that will look at the person in Romans 1 and say, that person's a wretch. And then, you know, then Paul turns his sight on that person and says, do you, do you presume on the kindness of God just because God's wrath is not being poured out on you that somehow you're going to escape this? No. Verse 4, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness 
is meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up. So instead of wrath being revealed on the ungodly, these people, their wrath is being stored up. Okay? And guess what happens? Eventually, the dam of God's wrath will no longer hold back that, that, that wrath, and it will come forth in judgment. You are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. This is a day of salvation. This is a day of repentance. The fact that God is not going to destroy the earth by means of a flood is meant to lead people to repentance. This is your time to make your peace with God, right? This is your time to repent and turn your heart to the Lord. Because as Paul will say in Romans 6, the wages of sin is death, right? Your sin is going to bring judgment. You're either going to have your sin kind of being judged as God is giving you over, or that judgment will come when that wrath is going to be revealed on the day of wrath. Either way, unless you come to faith in Christ, that wrath will be revealed. And it's not going to be good for you. (laughs) Um, But, my favorite word, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. God provides a way. Just as God provided an ark for Noah, God provides Jesus Christ for the sinners of today. Christ is our ark. Right? Come into Christ. He will, and then let God seal that door of the ark of Christ, and you are kept safe inside. Right? Just as the Proverbs say, the, you know, uh, the, the Lord is a refuge and a tower for the righteous, and the righteous man runs into it, and he is safe. Proverbs 18.10. The Lord Jesus Christ is a refuge. The righteous run to him and they are safe. So I'll stop here. Now let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, Lord, we're thankful again for the salvation that we have in Christ and that should lead us to worship. Just as Noah worshipped the Lord when he came off the ark, Lord, we too ought to worship you. Yet our worship, our sacrifice is not some of every clean animal. Our sacrifice is not even like the Lord Jesus Christ himself, his own precious blood. No, our sacrifice is a living sacrifice, Lord, as we spend our lives for you. It's a hard concept for us to kind of wrap our heads around here in this country, but for the life of the church, people have been spent for the kingdom of God which is why under the altar in heaven the martyrs cry out for vengeance and waiting for God to avenge their deaths. Yet, Lord, we're thankful that salvation is not dependent upon what we are doing or how much we do, but it's dependent upon Christ Jesus alone. But help us to understand, Lord, that as we live lives of thankful obedience, at some point, In some way, in some shape or form, we are going to run into the hatred of the world. Let us not shy back. Let us not retreat. Let us stand firm in our faith and present the love of Christ through the gospel to the world. So, Lord, again, until we meet again, I pray for these ones here who are here. Pray for those who are not here, who are normally here, Lord, that you will watch over them and care for them as well. pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.